very appreciative of uh, teaching us this new song for the month of October. It's a great opportunity for us to um, declare we walk by faith in God's word. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 is where I'd like to direct your attention in just a moment. We'll be reading from Ephesians 6, and you could have your Bibles open. That would be excellent. Uh, It is embarrassing to admit this to you, Uh, even though most of you know what I'm about to say. uh, It's still embarrassing where there are so many incredibly skilled people in our church. I hate to admit it, but I never feel more incompetent than when I have to fix something at my house. Um, These are the moments when I bring shame to both my family and my gender. Now, the reason for my discouragement is because nothing ever goes the way it is supposed to. Uh, A few months back, uh, I tried to replace the motion light attached to our garage. I didn't have any trouble buying one from the store. That was the easy part. And I didn't even have any trouble reading the instructions. Um, This actually, by the way, is the same light that a few years ago I had to replace just the motion sensor itself. And when I was doing that, I fell off the ladder. Um, Kathy was there. She tried to slow my descent to the ground, but the ladder fell on her. The ER doctor said it was okay, just bruising. So that was, um, well, anyway, I pulled the old lamp off, this old lamp off, and, and there should have been a light box there, but there was not a light box. All there were were two wires sticking out of the wall. The the screws that I had that were supposed to be screwed into the light box, no hope. Well, um, I I found a couple of screws anyway, uh, but in order to squeeze the light in to where it was underneath the gutter and, and connecting to the wires, I inadvertently, I didn't even know this, I installed it upside down. So that after a couple of rainstorms, the motion sensor filled with water and the light just shot out completely. Uh, recently, uh, I changed the uh, light switches and the sockets in the entryway to the house. Um, I, I tried to turn the power off before I did it. Um, I, I, I turned the breakers off and Luke was standing up in the, in the, the entryway and I, uh, I would turn one off and, is the light off yet? He got bored, apparently. Um, so I, I figured that out the first time I got shocked. Uh, then, um, as I continued, when there was a flash and black smoke, I really got serious. And I went down and just turned off all the power in the whole house. Sorry, children, time to play hide and seek in the dark and don't open the refrigerator. That's for till I'm done. Um, the, the sock, I pulled the old socket. It didn't have the right color wires. They weren't in the right place. At least there was a box this time. Um, I, I, I put it back in, installed everything, and to my shock, uh, the socket actually works. And by now we've gotten used to the hum that comes out of it. So we're really in, in good shape. Now, I like to accomplish things, and I like finishing jobs. I like following instructions. It never seems to work, though. It's a good thing I don't own the house. It would have burned down by now. I'm just saying that. Uh, There are forces at work beyond my control and beyond my expertise. 
This passage that's open before us uh, makes me think about my home repair adventures. The book of Ephesians itself is filled with commands. There's instructions all the way through it, if you will. Uh, they, they come all the way through the book. Paul uh, begins Ephesians with this grand description of the grace of God. His grace is all-powerful and it's all-encompassing. It's manifest in the gospel which was planned by the Father and executed by the Son and applied to us uh, by the Spirit. Uh, and, and then this grace works itself out in our lives. And, and Paul tells us how. He gives us instructions. But in this final section of the book of Ephesians, Paul devotes his attention to telling us why working out these commands is so hard. Why doing what, what he tells us to do in the first five chapters is so challenging. Why, why we often fail. You know, I, I read the instructions and then I look at my life and they don't, there's parts missing and it doesn't seem to match and it, it's not as easy as the instructions in, indicate that maybe it should be. What, what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 is, There are forces beyond your control and beyond your expertise that stand in opposition to you. Uh, Let's read the text. I'm going to read from Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, although today we're just going to look at the first few verses of of this section. Here's what, what God's word says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit On all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is one of Paul's most well-known passages, this extended image of war that he used. Following Christ is like war. And this is certainly not the only place that the Bible speaks like this. In fact, it comes at the very beginning in Genesis 3 when God is speaking to that serpent, that old serpent that had lured Adam and Eve away from him. God said to the serpent, serpent, there is going to be enmity between the daughters of Eve and between your offspring. There's going to be hostility and conflict between my people and those who follow you. And this is going to characterize humanity, this war, this conflict. 
there will be war. And, and we actually see this uh, lived out. This warfare imagery carries into the New Testament. Do you remember when Jesus and John the Baptist were speaking to the Pharisees? Both of them said at some point in time, you brood of vipers. You're just you're snakes, just like your daddy, that old serpent. Enmity. One of the reasons that following Jesus Christ is so hard, one of the reasons why we struggle to to do what Paul says in the first five chapters of Ephesians is because we have an enemy uh, to fight. I wonder how aware you are of this. You need to understand it, and I bet you don't think about it very often or very much. So, so Paul instructs us, and, and I want to move through his instructions here in the first four verses at least by asking and answering two questions. We're going to spend most of our time on the first. We'll actually spend more time on the second uh, next week, Lord willing. But he, here are the questions. Who are we fighting and how do we fight? Who are we fighting and how do we fight? Those are the questions I want to answer. Let's start with the first one, shall we? Who are we fighting? The simple answer to that question is, we're fighting the devil and a host of evil spiritual forces. The devil and a host of evil spiritual forces. Now, I know what you're thinking, some of you, already. This is a sermon about Satan. (laughs) And I don't like sermons about Satan. Uh, Frankly, to talk about Satan in our culture in 2012, is embarrassing. Now, if we were in uh, Africa or Asia or Latin America or anywhere really except the West, I would be able to talk about the devil and evil spiritual forces, and everyone would say, yes, tell us more. We, that, right. But we're inclined to... We chuckle a little bit. Flip Wilson taught us that the devil is not a serious enemy. He's, he's a punchline. devil made me do it. Uh, The church lady blames Satan on everything that crosses her sanctimonious scruples. Or the devil is the person in horror movies who makes your head spin. But, you know, Satan is funny or he's entertaining in a freakishly horrific part kind of way. Really? Satan? We don't believe in the devil in our culture or evil spiritual forces. In fact, our natural tendency, what we do think, is that we think that everything that happens has a scientific, natural, measurable cause. The problems that we encounter in our culture, are they're medical, they're psychological, they're sociological. They're not moral, and they're certainly not demonic. And, and with that belief, we're falling into the trap that Paul warns us against when he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're inclined to say our struggle is only against flesh and blood. Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. Now, Paul here is not denying that there are evil people in the world. There were evil people who were keeping him in jail when he was writing Ephesians. There were evil people that had scourged him, evil people that had opposed his message. But behind those human beings is this host of evil demonic forces. The Bible is not describing the way we, in our culture, identify and solve our problems. Again, we think we're only fighting flesh and blood. Our problems are medical. If you are angry or depressed or stressed or filled with lust, maybe you have a chemical problem, here's a pill. I'll write your prescription for that. It will solve your problem. It's a flesh and blood problem. Here's a flesh and blood solution, a chemical. 
Uh, If you're worried or having trouble trusting others or you're stealing or lying compulsively, it's probably because of your parenting. It's your dad's fault. It's your mom's fault. Your family was messed up. You need counseling. This is a flesh and blood problem only. And so we have therapeutic Christianity. Uh, The problems of racism and poverty in the world are sociological. We can explain them because of your class or your culture or the circumstances in which you were raised. Our natural tendency is to believe that every problem is a flesh and blood problem, and therefore every problem has a flesh and blood solution. You can see that very clearly these days because there are two men desperate to sell you on their flesh and blood solutions. Uh, With the new policies that the federal government is going to enact, we can ensure happiness and prosperity and security for everyone. I know that's true because there's candidates that tell me that, right? Flesh and blood problems, flesh and blood solutions. According to the Bible, though, evil is not just a flesh and blood problem. In fact, assigning all ills, all societal ills, or all personal problems to your genetics or your upbringing, or your class is entirely too simplistic. The Bible is not nearly as simplistic as our culture is when it comes to identifying the source of evil. And and Christians, when we have been at our best, uh, have not been that simplistic. Uh, Richard Baxter was a pastor, he was a Puritan pastor, and he had a a great ministry and is well known for his pastoral care of those uh, in his congregation. And he wrote a book, uh, obviously, four or five hundred years ago about depression. Melancholy is what he called it, but it was a book about depression. And he tried to pastor people by by probing them for for causes behind their melancholy. He he identified four of them. Sometimes he said the problem is physical. And in those days he would say, you need rest, you need a better diet. Sometimes the problem is psychological. Some of us are just inclined toward melancholy. It's part of your personality. What does that person need? That person needs love and care and tender words. Sometimes uh, the, the cause, Baxter said, of depression is moral. You're depressed because you feel guilty about something that you've done. Or you're depressed because you feel shame about something that has been done to you. If you're depressed because of what you have done, you need to repent. That's the solution. You don't need rest. You don't need uh, uh, a better diet. You don't need love and care. You need to repent. If if your, your melancholy comes from what has been done to you, you need tender reminders of the cleansing grace of God. Sometimes, fourth he said, the cause of depression is spiritual. And for that, you need to go to war. Uh, This is Paul's focus here. Paul's focus is on the spiritual. Have you dismissed the devil from your worldview? We don't don't talk about Satan. We don't think about Satan. It's silly to think about Satan. Do you have a place in your understanding of how the world works for a powerful, supernatural, evil, personal being? Why not? Are you so influenced by the narrow cultural assumptions of this world, the, the rationalistic West, that, that you have no place for the possibility of its existence? Hmm. Now, as, as the passage continues here in verse 12, uh, the Bible gets expansive and more specific about our foe. Uh, looking at it at verse 12, it says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
Now, some people wonder here if, if Paul is giving us a hierarchy that um, he's describing an evil army. And just like in, a, in a, our army, there's generals and, and uh, various ranks, captains, majors, sergeants, privates, they all fit in there. Uh, just like in, in our army, there's, there's those ranks. Maybe Paul, some people think, is giving ranks here. There's rulers and authorities and powers and, and spiritual forces. I, I have heard people say that... I. Most of those rankings, though, when they do that, they're very speculative, and I think they're rooted in suspicious sources. For example, there are some who say they are experts in spiritual warfare and have participated in exorcisms, and they say, I know about the spiritual world because I have talked to demons. demon was possessing somebody, and I asked the demon questions, and they told me. The problem with that, or, or sometimes they say, um, I, I talked to a former witch, someone who used to worship these evil forces, and, and now she has told me uh, about them all. The, the problem with that thinking is, the devil is a liar. Why do you think he would tell you the truth? Why do you think these demons would, would speak honestly with you? The, I, every word that comes out of Satan's mouth is a lie. So don't believe him. I actually think what Paul is doing here is he's piling adjectives and descriptive words on top of one another in order to confront you with the reality and the power and the force with which a spiritual opposition comes. This is not a Sunday afternoon game of tiddlywinks. This is serious. And there are beings with great power committed to great wickedness in opposition to the light of God who do not want you to resist their power and influence. Uh, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis begins uh, this way. He said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. If you walk around in, in denial of spiritual forces, evil spiritual forces, um, they don't mind at all your materialism. If you walk around in constant fear, looking for Satan behind every bush, um, uh, th- th- they don't mind either that. You're walking in that fear. Uh, you're walking in that magician mindset. Paul here wants us to be serious and realistic. And actually, he he uses a couple key words in this passage that are worth thinking about to help flesh out our understanding of who it is who opposes us. He uses the word schemes. We have an enemy who schemes. Uh, Verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That's the word methods or strategies. Uh, The devil plots, he plans, he schemes. 1 Peter 5 says, because the devil plots and schemes, you have to be alert. He masquerades, Jesus warns us. He lies. He lies and lies and lies. He schemes. We fight against a devil who schemes, but Paul here refers to this battle as a struggle. Our fight is described as a struggle. Did you see that in verse 12? For our struggle, your translation might say wrestle, in which case that's a good translation. It's a wrestling word. It refers to close quarters combat. 
Think about this here in, in modern warfare, how far away you can be from your enemy and how that changes the tenor of the fight. Uh, there are uh, pilots uh, in the southwestern United States who fly drones that are thousands of miles away. Or uh, think about then, uh, you get a little closer to your enemy if you're doing an artillery battle and you're fighting with cannons. You might be a mile away, but, but you're certainly much closer than being in the southwest United States. Or think about standing across a battlefield when you're fighting with machine guns. And you, you can see your enemy and, and see the flashes from, from their guns and, and feel them whistle through the air. Think about the difference in intensity that is communicated when, when, when you are face-to-face and your main weapons are your fists or maybe a knife. You fight with every bit of energy and desperation you have. I haven't seen it in several years, but, but I think I re- remember a scene from a movie version of the, the novel, All Quiet on the Western Front. And the young German soldier is getting ready to go to uh, uh, the trenches, and his sergeant pulls him aside, and he talks about his weapons, and he says, this is a bayonet. Um, it's designed to stab people. He, Don't do that, because you won't be able to get it out once you push it in. Instead, he said, take your shovel. This is your best weapon for close quarter combat. You can cut somebody's head off with this shovel. You swing it right at their neck. How desperate do you have to be in battle in order to think that your, your main source of defense is decapitating your enemy? Paul, our struggle, this is a wrestle. This is something to take seriously. Now, what surprises me about this is that Paul doesn't really elaborate on the schemes that the devil uses. He doesn't say anything about that in in this passage. He doesn't specifically name them or elaborate at all. A few years ago, a group of men from the church, uh, we got together and read a wonderful old book. It was called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. They would never call a book that, that today. Uh, Phillips Brooks wrote it. Um, He lists 50 or 60 ways in which Satan tempts us or discourages us. Paul doesn't lay it out that way here in this this passage. I I think the reason he doesn't here is because his point is to call us to war. He wants us to know this is serious. You've got to be ready. He doesn't go into those details. That's not his purpose. Yet... I think earlier in Ephesians, he gives us a clue here to think about these schemes. Flip over with me to Ephesians 4, verse 26. This is not the first time. Ephesians 6 is not the first time in the book of Ephesians that Paul mentions uh, spiritual warfare or the devil even. Uh, look what he says here in um, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. He says, in your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. That is, don't give him a place in in your life. The NIV here uses the term foothold. Your translation might say place, but foothold is a a decent translation. It describes uh, a place where you're going to make progress. If you're climbing a mountain, you want a foothold, something to boost yourself up. Or if you're scaling the wall of a city to conquer it, you want a foothold to scale that wall. And he says, uncontrolled anger in your life is a foothold. Be careful about anger, he says, because Satan takes it and he spoils it. He poisons it. He takes what may be legitimate 
anger, legitimate righteous anger, and he turns it and he uses it for his own purposes. Be careful of being an angry person because the devil wants to uh, uh, scheme to exploit that anger. Now, let's think and expand that a little bit further. We can, I think, using this anger example here. I think you could describe Satan's schemes this way. Satan (coughs) works to exploit your natural bents. That's how he schemes. Satan works to exploit your natural bents. We all have points of vulnerability. There are all ways in which we are specifically inclined. Some of us, uh, well, we all have ways in which we are specially inclined to turn from God. This is one of the ways that sin manifests itself. Hebrews 12 talks about there being a besetting sin Some of you are inclined to sins that I'm not, and I'm inclined to sins that you're not. And the devil schemes to exploit those weaknesses in your life. I think he does it for a very specific reason, which I'll get to in a minute. For example, the devil can take someone who is inclined to turn from God and toward pleasure for comfort and turn that person into a glutton. The devil takes someone who is desperate to find significance and turns her into a control freak or a people pleaser. And the devil takes someone with a particularly soft conscience who maybe is naturally inclined to be burdened by shame and turns that person toward despair. That's one of Satan's favorite schemes. He's called the accuser, the accuser. The devil schemes to take your strengths and, and your weaknesses and turn them toward his, soul, his purposes. And it is so subtle. It's subtle because it feels just like you. It's so natural. You, you simmer in your anger. You cower in your shame. You revel in your pleasure. And it just feels so right. This is what I do. This is who I am. This is how I'm bent. I have never been tempted to steal lipstick from a department store. I have never been tempted to, to have. Now, um, there's no point in me bragging about my self-righteousness. So some, some of you in this room have been. It's not a temptation I feel. If I were to go to a department store, I would not feel that. And if, if, if the thought came to my mind, go grab it, she's not looking, okay? I, I, no, that's just, No. But there are other things in the mall that I can walk around and see and want and long for and covet. And it just feels so natural, so right. And Satan is at work in your life with the things, the things that you are bent to. And he takes, you, he takes what is already there and he twists it, he poisons it, he spins it. For his own purposes. And it just feels comfortable. He schemes. How, how do we fight? Who do we fight? We fight against the devil. How do we fight? The, the text tells us very simply. He tells us, in fact, twice at the beginning, at the end of this little passage. Put on the full armor of God. That's how we fight. Put on the full armor of God. I'm going I'm to mention this today. We're going to talk about this next week more. 
I think what is surprising in the passages that come, the, the verses that come when Paul talks about the armor of God, what's surprising is how normal they are, how average they are. He, he talks about things he's already spoken about before. Um, if you take away the armor imagery, look, verse 14 is about truth and righteousness. And verse 15 is about peace and the gospel. And verse 16 is about faith. And verse 17 is about salvation and the spirit, the word of God. These are all very normal things. Very, things he's talked about already in the book of Ephesians. There are already themes that have come up. Peace, righteousness, truth, the spirit. There's, there's not really anything new here. But what Paul is doing is he's framing these things differently. He wants you to see how the things that you already know are useful in this reality of the warfare to which we're called as followers of Christ. Um, this reminds me of, of the training regimen of the karate kid. <laughs> How much do I need to explain this? Uh, some of you uh, know the story very, very well. There's a young man named Daniel. He wants to uh, learn karate. So he goes to Mr. Miyagi, and Mr. Miyagi agrees to, to teach him. Right? First day, Daniel shows up. He's very excited. And Mr. Miyagi uh, hands him sandpaper and says, now sand the deck. And he shows him very specifically how, with what motions, he's supposed to sand the deck. And, and Daniel sands and sands and sands and sands and sands. And he thinks to himself, well, I don't know, maybe he needs some work's done, work done, and I'll work a little bit, and then he'll train me. Well... Day one goes by, he comes back for day two, and Mr. Miyagi hands him a can of paint. He says, now paint, and he tells him very specifically how the painting is supposed to go. Uh, very specific motions he has for him. And he, and he paints, and he paints, and he paints, and he paints. Day three, very famous scene. Here, Daniel, I want you to wax my cars. And he shows him very specifically how to wax the motion he wants him to use. Wax on, wax off, Right? Very specific. At the end, Daniel says, Mr. Miyagi, what is up with this? You're supposed to be teaching me karate, and all you're doing is teaching. I'm standing, I'm painting, I'm waxing. This is not, I'm not accomplishing anything. I'm not learning karate at all. And then Mr. Miyagi shows him how all those motions that he's been practicing, thousands of times that he's been repeating, are actually the basis of good defense in karate. He didn't know it, but Daniel was being equipped to, to fight. Well, Paul is Mr. Miyagi. And all the way through the book of Ephesians, he's been talking gospel, 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 gospel. We've been listening. And now he shows us the gospel is how you fight. You fight with the truth that I have been declaring to you. You fight with the righteousness that I have been describing. You fight with the peace that comes from the gospel that I proclaim to you. Uh, for example, when you realize that Christ has paid, really paid for all of your sin on the cross, past present and future it, it frees you from the accuser and no matter what satan says to discourage you and to silence you and to sideline you you say oh before the throne my surety stands my name is graven on his hands right? or if, if you think that you can soothe the sorrows of this world with food or sex or alcohol or drugs we remember those those may be good gifts god is the source of our consolation He's removed from us the bitterness of sin, and Jesus Christ is the healing balm for all of the wounds and thorns of life in this broken world. That's gospel truth. 
This is, how, this is how we stand. We work the gospel out with the same power that raised Christ from the dead. We trust in him and we stand. Having done everything we can to stand, that is, having learned as much of the gospel as we can, we stand. We're called to war. This is our reality. And following Christ, our captain, we stand. Let's pray, shall we? Father, these are sobering words that confront us in a, a number of ways. They, they, we confess to you they confront us because we are not inclined to believe in our enemy. Uh, we're, we're not inclined to uh, consider and heed these warnings that you give us in your word. Father, forgive us for our foolishness for thinking that, that every problem we have is merely a flesh and blood one. Forgive us for thinking that we can solve all problems with pills or policies or laws. We come before you today because this, this passage sobers us about our enemy who is strong and powerful and, and diverse and, and he's much smarter than we are. Thank you, Father, that you have given us the armor, the full armor of God that enables us to stand. Would you make us as a congregation those who, having done everything, do stand? We are grateful to you for your enabling power. Um, prepare us. Clothe us. Um, Shape us so that we can fight for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray these things. Amen.